Well, good morning. I know what you're thinking. No, I am not Luke. <laughs> I'm that other guy. My name is Tyler Wilsheets. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, I get the honor and privilege to stand before you today and preach God's word. Amen? Before I do that, can we give an extra round of applause to these guys, how hard they work? That was awesome. That was awesome. I know a lot of times when I get to preach, um, I, I love doing it, um, but a lot of times when I get to preach, we go out of whatever sermon series we're in and I kind of preach topical or something that God's laid on my heart. Uh, that's not the case today. We're going to continue in Beatitudes. So I know what you're thinking. If you're wondering if Luke left me with one sentence to preach on, you're correct. Yes, he did. So we're going to continue in Matthew in the Beatitudes. Uh, five, uh, chapter 5, verse 4 is where we'll be reading today. Uh, and that verse says this of Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Luke is out on vacation this week. Uh, he's down in Texas. He's having some relaxing time. I talked to him catching some trout and some redfish. Sounds like a good time, doesn't it? Although it is 110 last time I heard from him. So I said, yeah, man, it's uh, 53 here this morning. So <laughs> he's like, well, I can't wait to get back home. Uh, so with him, I, I know you guys know this, but he puts in so much time, energy, and effort into this church. And so... Uh, I would just ask that during this time you guys would join with me in prayer as we move forward, but during your week this week, that it would just be a relaxing time for him, uh, a time where he can mentally recharge and refresh, uh, because this job, just like many others, there's a lot that goes on and a lot that you experience and a lot of weight that's put on you, and so just for him to come back refreshed and, and ready to move forward, because this is my church too. You know, I take in the messages from him every single week, and I'm truly blessed by it, and I know you guys are too. Um, so please pray for him and Caroline that they have good conversations during this time, and uh, it'll just be a good time of relaxation. Uh, I want to say something and just talk to you guys as a family here for a minute. It, it truly is such an honor to stand before you guys and preach. It really, really is. I've gotten to know quite a few of you. Uh, I've had lunches with you. We've grown closer over the couple years, almost couple years that I've been here. Uh, and it's just, to me, every time I get the opportunity to do this, or when Luke asked if I would mind preaching, it literally blows my mind that God takes somebody like me, a sinner like me, you guys have no idea the things I've done in my life, and somehow I'm standing before a couple or a few hundred people today preaching his gospel to me blows my mind. And I want to challenge you, thank you, whoever was clapping, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I want to challenge you that if you're in this room and you have no idea what I'm talking about, or you walked in here and you thought, man, I don't even deserve to be around church family or a church. If God knew who I was or the things I've done, I wouldn't even be welcomed here. And can I tell you, you are completely wrong. I am a wretched sinner, and yet God chose to put me in this situation to be here today, and I'm so blessed by it. So my challenge for you is to plug in today. Lock in today, because I think that God has something he really wants to say. Um, I also want to say that um, I still have these conversations with God. I did right before I came on stage back here. And my plan for my life was to play baseball. I played all the way through college. Some of you guys who know me know that. Uh, my plan was to play baseball. This is not my plan. But I can tell you from experience, God's plan is better. Even when we experience trials, even when we go through tribulations, even when we have hardships, God's plan is so much better. This is better than a hundred, a hundred lifetimes of playing professional baseball. It just is. And I want you to really understand that this morning, where I come from, 
standing here and what it means, knowing that my family is not saved, knowing that I have presented the gospel to them hundreds of times and it's been rejected by half of my family. It's not easy to stand here. It's not easy to stand in front of you guys and to do this. I have to remind myself, God, this is your message and your will, and please use me as a vessel this morning. So with that, I just kind of want to set that uh, out there so that you guys know where I'm coming from and how uh, just honored and privileged I am to stand here before you guys today, and that Luke trusts me enough to stand here and be however far Texas is away from here, on the other side of the country. So... Uh, There are three main pillars of this church. And when I say pillars, these are the things in which Luke and Caroline prayed about. These are the three most important things that this church has been planted on. They're prayer, the word, and worship. Uh, On our website, Veneration Church, this is what it says about prayer. We are a church that wrestles in prayer together and individually. The word, or God's word, the Bible... What it says on the website is, the word of God is living and active and our authority in everything. And then worship. We worship in spirit and in truth with reverence and awe, which is where the word veneration comes from, giving God the glory he deserves. Charles Spurgeon says this, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. So what is he saying? There has to be an emphasis on prayer. You know why? Because we can go to God, creator God, and have conversation and community. And you know what? He honors that. He honors that time that we spend with him. He hears the prayers of his people. If that doesn't get a hallelujah, amen, I don't know what will. I mean, talk about amazing. It, It literally rocks me to my core to know that God, who spoke things into existence, hears me talking with him. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And with that, I want to encourage you, uh, every Sunday at 9 a.m., we meet in those glass doors out front there, and we have a prayer meeting at 9 a.m. before every church service. We also, the first Monday of every month, have a meeting at the church offices where anybody's welcome to come and pray over the church, uh, over God's kingdom, over our friends, over our trials, over our hurts, our tribulations, all of these things. And so with that, I want to step into a time of prayer here quickly and cover those things before I step into the message. God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. God, I thank you that the folks in this room have created a priority, and that priority is you. Today, right here, right now. We pray over Pastor Luke, and we pray over Caroline as they uh, are down in Texas, God, for recovery, for relaxation, for just a good time with family and friends. Lord, I just pray that you bless that. God, I pray over the uh, leadership of this church, God, that we have wisdom and discernment to decide where you're moving us in the direction that we have, and Uh, just the way that you're working with and among your people in this room. God, I've been so blessed to just be around so many godly people who just have an intent and a heart to pursue you. And God, I just pray that you set our hearts on fire with your word. God, I pray that motivates us uh, into prayer, God, where we can have community with you and have conversations with you, God. I thank you that you are alive and you are active and your word rings true today as it did thousands of years ago. And as we read into it today, God, I just pray for your discernment for us. God, I pray over the words that are going to come out of my mouth. Lord, in Romans, you tell me that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. I pray that's the spirit we hear from today. God, if there's anything of my heart or my selfish desire that is in these notes or this sermon, I pray that you remove it. God, may this day be a day about you. And I pray for people in this room that they hear the message, God, that you have for them. 
And the only way that can happen is if you move. So we give this morning to you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're in the Beatitudes, there are eight Beatitudes here, and I want to make it clear, these are characteristics uh, of a Christian or us in our Christian walk. They're not separate from each other. These aren't like separate personalities, like uh, if anybody's ever taken a spiritual gift assessment. Has anybody ever done that before? It's like you have these specific gifts, but these aren't necessarily your strong areas. That, that's not what these beatitudes are, are at all. Jesus is saying, be these things. If you are these things, there's blessing that comes from that. Uh, this isn't a message we're going to really pull out what blessing is, but you could do a lot of really good research on what blessing is. But Jesus is saying, if you maintain or have these characteristics, you'll be blessed because of it in some way, okay? So these aren't separate things like, oh yeah, I, I'm poor in spirit, but I don't, I've never really mourned before. That's not really how this list works, okay? <laughs> so as we work through these each week, just remember, we're adding on to things that we learned previously. Jesus says, Uh, blessed are these type of people, and then you move to the next one, and blessed are these type of people, that's the same characteristics that we should maintain all of those things throughout the Beatitudes. Does that make sense? Not like separate individual things. Uh, So in order to properly understand that what Jesus is saying here and realizing the type of person we should be shaped into, I think Luke did a really good job last week bringing in context, uh, but I want to do that one more time because uh, churches say that people come every third weekend. So if you weren't here last weekend, you get a chance to hear it again real quick. And I'm just going to buzz through it because Luke did a fantastic job with the context last week. So I'm going to reverse a little bit or rewind to chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Uh, it should be just above where we are in your Bible. So I'll start in verse 23. And he, who, Jesus, went through all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, uh, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, Uh, And from Jerusalem to Judea and beyond the Jordan. So now chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. Verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is what Luke went over last week. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those is the kingdom of heaven. And then our uh, section in question today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, If you look back last week, Luke talked a little bit about this uh, first verse here about how Jesus would go up the mountain. And in those days, the teacher or whoever was leading that conversation would actually sit and everybody else would be standing. So we're going to try that today. Yeah. No, in reality, I've got a pinch nerve or something in my back. So I'm like really struggling up here. So if I lean on this, trust me, I'm not being lazy. I'm just in pain. So if you see that or you see my legs start wobbling, just know that. (laughs) This is not me in a bad posture. I'm just hurting, okay? So in all reality, that is the way it worked in those days. And the reason he would go up the mountain is because it created this voice that he could uh, send down to the people who were below him so they could hear properly. As I'm elevated today, it would be like him being elevated and teaching in that time. Uh, So Luke talked about that last week, and he was spot on on that. If you didn't hear what Luke said last week, you can always go to our website, veneracechurch.com, check out that podcast wherever they're checked out. This sounds like a radio ad. I realize that. I realize that. 
Um, so, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I really, really studied through this this week. If you're given one sentence that you have to stand in front of people and teach, you should really take time and depict and really pull apart that sentence, right? Like, what is the context, context in which Jesus is speaking? And how does that apply? And what's the message you pull from that, right? Luke did such a fantastic job last week talking about poor in spirit. My job is to talk about those who mourn. And the first point that I want to make is that we should mourn our sin. So what is this section that we're studying today talking about? Mourning. At face value, if you just read it, you may think that uh, Jesus is saying when you're sad or you mourn situations or you're going through a loss of a job or family issues or stuff, we all go through stuff, right? We have our stuff. Jesus will comfort you in that. To an extent, that's definitely true. I mean, who can get an amen to that, right? God comforts his people as we go through struggles and trials and tribulations when we're mourning. Um, how many in this room have ever uh, been comforted by a situation that Jesus, you asked the Lord into and he comforted you in that time of trial? Maybe it was a time of mourning, like a loss of somebody close to you, a relative or a friend. I mean, how many times have you felt the presence of God and God showed up and comforted you in that time? That's absolutely true. But given the context right here, that's not necessarily the point that Jesus is making. That is the added benefit of being a Christian. God comforts us. But what Jesus is saying here, this is mourning over our sin. This is why it's important to realize the original languages, the Greek in which this is written. So if you're ever studying God's word, I challenge you to go back to original Greek, the original Hebrew, and really break those words down to see exactly, thank you for turning that off, whoever did that. Really break down those words and see exactly what in the original languages this meant, Okay because our English language is not the best translation from those words, okay? So in the Greek here, the meaning of this word mourn would be to grieve or lament, to grieve or lament. And if any of you are like me, you're thinking cement, what is cement? No, no, lament, lament. So I had to look it up because I didn't know exactly what that meant, although I had a, a pretty good idea. Uh, and the Webster's Dictionary, which still exists for those of you who are wondering, is to feel or express sorrow or a deep regret for. So you have this sorrow or this regret for something that has taken place, right? And that creates this space of mourning. Uh, another definition says, and I love this, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So some of you know my salvation story a little bit. I was saved when I was 25. And I know what you're thinking, man, that was 20 years ago. No, only 10. I know I don't have any hair, but still, that was only 10 years ago. Um, I was dating this beautiful girl who is now my wife. If she was here, I'd show you to her. But um, we got a little more serious in our relationship. And she said, uh, growing up in church, hey, if we're going to get a little more serious, I, I can't pursue someone who's not a Christian. And I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. We are like the buckle of the Bible Belt. And can you believe this? Nobody once told me there was this guy named Jesus who died for my sins. Never. Adam and Eve, never heard of it. 25 years old and I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Is that unbelievable? Unbelievable. If you think we have a challenge here in the valley sharing the gospel, in the middle of the Bible belt where we hold the belt on the waist, I didn't hear it. Isn't that amazing? 
So she said, hey, if, if, listen, if, you, if we want to continue down this path, you really need to go to church. And I'm thinking, yeah, man, she's beautiful. I'm definitely going to church. Well, sure, no problem. And I was like, hey, can we still Saturday night like go out dancing? Is that still an okay thing? She's like, yeah, of course. So we, I remember the first time I ever went to church, we went out Saturday night. Uh, we went dancing in the stockyards. We loved to two-step uh, waltz, country dance. We have such a blast doing that. So I don't even think we got home till maybe 3 in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. But we made it to church. And she said, I want you to meet my parents. I'm thinking, man, church, parents, good grief. This is a lot, right? So we made it there. And she said, if you go, then our, my parents will treat us to lunch after. I'm like, yeah, man, this is a win-win right here. So, so we go to church, and I have no idea what was preached, what was said, what was taught. I have no idea. And after church, uh, Donnie, my father-in-law, said, how was it? And I said, oh, man, it, yeah, it was great. Uh, food was fantastic. He said, well, why don't you come back again next week, and we'll buy lunch again. I thought, dude, this, I'm onto something here, man. I've got this beautiful girl that's dating me, and her dad's buying me lunch all the time. Like, this is fantastic, right? So I go back the second week, and much dissimilar, I, I don't remember really anything that happened. But that third week, I showed up. And I remember having kind of a soft heart on the way to church. I'm thinking, there's something different about this family uh, that I just hadn't really experienced before. These words that this pastor, sorry, I know we're getting some feedback here. I think it's the beard. Joseph can relate. Look at him back there. Um, So uh, that third Sunday, we go and sit down in our seats, and I really felt something I've never felt before in my life. During worship, I felt the presence of God, although I didn't know what it was. It was just this I just felt something different, right? And and many of you have probably experienced that, and it may be difficult to to say exactly what that is, right? Like, how do you describe somebody's voice? I mean, how do you, you, I don't know. I can just tell if it's my daughter crying, if it's my daughter crying. Well, I felt something that I hadn't felt before, but I knew what it was. I knew it was the presence of God. And the uh, pastor, Chuck Angel, got up, and he started preaching this message. And I remember it. It was like landing, like I'm resonating with all of these things, like I can hear what he's saying, and it's, it's landing. And I vividly remember thinking, God, if this is real, if you're real, I need you to give me some type of sign here, which I don't suggest doing, by the way. But at that exact moment, if I'm lying, I'm dying, Chuck Angel said, you, I'm talking to you. And he pointed straight at me. It was probably the guy behind me. But I felt like he pointed straight at me. And you know what happened? I went into this morning that I had never experienced before. I'm a college athlete. I snapped my foot in half, rolled over, stood back up, and wanted to go back in the game. I, I am not a one who weeps over things that, that about anything, really. But it, God broke me in that moment. And I realized this is what clicked. I realized how God viewed the things I'd done in my life. You know what's more important? I realized God, who created the heavens and the earth, did something about it. That's amazing. I literally was in tears, and I slid off of that church pew, down onto the ground, bawling. Bawling. I remember looking down the pew, and I saw my father-in-law bump, you know, my mother-in-law. At the time, it was just, you know, my, my uh, girlfriend's mom. And he's like, yeah, it's happening, bro. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then he bumps Alicia, and Alicia's like, oh, yeah, it's happening, bro. <laughs> and I got up from that, and I felt the presence of God. And I knew 
what it was. I knew how he saw my sin, and then I knew how I was his now. It was amazing. It was amazing. I long for that feeling, right? That feeling of salvation that just is so totally different to realize I'm not in this on my own. It took me realizing the weight of my sin to where I broke down in mourning over what I had done against God who loved me fiercely. It was unbelievable. I love the way that John uh, MacArthur puts it. He says, Christ has in mind here a specific kind of godly mourning. I resonate with that. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10 in the NASB, New American Standard. Uh, For sorrow that according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces uh, death. Only one kind of sorrow brings life. That is godly sorrow, which leads us to repentance. Therefore, we can conclude that Jesus is referring to, in this beatitude, sorrow over sin, as I expressed. Godly sorrow is linked to repentance, and repentance is linked to sin, right? The repentance is what calls us to salvation. So he goes on, he says, this kind of mourning is being sorry because you're a sinner. Put simply, Christ promises to bless those who truly grieve over their sin. What he's describing here is an essential element of repentance, that word that we don't like to discuss in the Western church, right? Repentance. There's no salvation apart from repentance. There's no repentance apart from grieving over the presence and power of sin in our lives. If you don't take sin seriously, if it doesn't grieve you to your core, then you have good reason to doubt the authenticity of your faith. If we haven't been grieved to our core over the separation that we have from a loving and righteous God, it is room enough to question our salvation. My job today is not to stand up here and punch. My job is to simply present what God has put in this book and the Holy Spirit's job is to punch. If you're feeling punched this morning, maybe that's from something bigger and better than I can ever explain. If there is conviction this morning, that need to repent, maybe that is the Holy Spirit resonating with you the way he resonated with me in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm challenging you right now, lean into that. Don't back from that, lean into that as we continue. So what does this all mean? As a non-Christian or a non-believer, your recognition of sin and separation from God because of your sin should cause you to lament or mourn. It has to. If there is no mourning, there is no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no salvation. Are we tracking here? That makes sense, right? We have to have something to repent from in order to be saved. We have to realize the weight of our sin so that we know how to be saved. She, like, she understands right there, that little baby. She's got it. Uh, as part of uh, uh, being a Christian, part of our growth as a Christian should cause us to grow closer to God. And as a result of that closeness, we should start to realize the magnitude of our sin and the weight of what Jesus did for us. Has anybody felt that before? You've been saved, and you know you've been saved for a long time, but you still feel this magnitude of the sin that you have in your life, right? This unrighteousness that happens. I am so guilty of that. I have those unrighteous things pop up in my mind all the time in my heart. And you know what? I prayed it earlier. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within us, Romans 8. If the same spirit lives in us, how can he not highlight those sins, right? 
if those sins aren't being highlighted in your life to the point of mourning, then, then what are the results? How, how can you truly look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm saved, and you're comfortable living in those things? Again, it, we could put a giant, oh, sorry, good grief. We could put a giant mirror in front of me right now, and I could be preaching this to me, okay? So hear me in that. I love you all. I'm not convicting you. I'm just pointing out the things that God showed me this week. I've lived that. I've experienced those things. I can stand here in front of you and say, through my own experience, I, I know what I'm talking about because I've lived it. God has allowed me to live it. Um, that sin in our life could be many things. The Holy Spirit could ruthlessly pursue in our lives. It could be idols. It could be medication. It could be self-medication. It could be a relationship, it could be anger, it could be drinking, it could be drugs. You can fill in any of those things, and I may check all those boxes. That, that sin that's in our life, the Holy Spirit as a Christian relentlessly pursues those things. Why? So we can walk in sanctification. So that we can realize the objective of the Holy Spirit is to convict in a way that leads us closer to God. Why? Because there's blessing in it. There's an experience there that you can't experience anywhere else. The drinking, the drugs, the relationships, sex, they don't provide the ultimate feeling or fullness of what God provides. And I know there are people in here who would say hallelujah to that. I know that for a fact. And I know that I'm one of those because I've tried it. I've tried it. I've tried it all. Uh, you guys would be surprised at the things I've tried to fill that void that I didn't know only Jesus filled. And then that conviction that I have of those sins that every once in a while pop up, that spirit conviction that just drives me to my knees and say, God, why am I doing this? But then I'm able to turn and look at the cross and realize that Jesus took care of these things so that I don't have to. He's done what I could not do. Matt Chandler says it this way, conviction is an invitation to a better life. That'll preach right there. Conviction is an invitation to a better life. Can I point something out? This is an ongoing process. This isn't something that just flips a switch and then you're all better. This is a continued process as we grow and walk in our sanctification. You could talk to somebody who was just saved yesterday or who's been saved for 60 years. If they're truly about how they feel about God and their sin and their sin nature, they'll tell you, yeah, it doesn't change. I'm still working on those things. Over time, there should be different things. Hopefully you're not working on something today that you'll still be working on 60 years from now, but that Holy Spirit conviction in you is an invitation to a better life. Please don't confuse this conviction with condemnation. Please don't confuse conviction with condemnation. Uh, John 3.16 says this specifically, and a lot of us who are in Christ know this verse. Even if you haven't been to church before, I'm sure you've probably heard this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes in him is condemned, or does not believe in him, is condemned already. So we're already condemned, and God intervened in that. You see how that works? A lot of times we read 16, and we forget to read 17 and 18. There's not condemnation in it complete opposite. There's conviction in it, and that is good. That's Holy Spirit power, right? That's what I'm after. I'm after the Holy Spirit power. That's what I need in my life. Not a, con a condemnation, a conviction. Those are two clearly separate things. 
Our sins and our shortcomings should draw us to our knees in mourning over that sin. Why? Because there's blessing in it. Because there's freedom in it. And most importantly, there's salvation in it. Isn't that the amazing thing about mourning? It draws us to our knees so that we may be saved, so that we can repent and call upon the only one who could take care of something we cannot on our own. Hallelujah. Amen. We should mourn our sin. Number two, we should grow in the mourning the sinfulness of the world. We should grow in to mourn the sinfulness of the world. Once we work on this thing ourselves, that's the most important thing, like focusing on ourselves, realizing we are sinful, then we begin to grieve for the sinfulness of the world around us. Who can resonate with that? Not that we're made, that we're, we're made perfect, not that we are perfect, not that I still don't have struggles and trials and tribulations, but I see people differently now that the Spirit lives in me. This is a scary prayer, but I ask God to see people the way he sees people. That's a scary prayer because he's answered that prayer for me before. And it breaks my heart to see people walking in sin and walking away from God, the one who loves them because they've been shared a false gospel, because they don't know what it's like to really walk in the freedom that God has given us, right? That causes me to grieve for the sinfulness of the world. I can't even hear my brother's name without grieving. I can't hear a word that sounds like Austin without grieving. I love him so much, but I see the way he's walking, but I also see the way that God sees him, and it causes me to grieve for that. And you know something else? He has a daughter. It causes me to grieve for multiple generations. But in a moment, we can change those generations. God intervenes in those situations, and I know he does, and he draws people to himself, and then it affects generations. I don't want anybody to show their hands, but how many first-time Christians, first-generation Christians are in this room? Quite a few, I bet. And you can see that sin after sin after sin after generation after generation after generation, and God can shut it down and change it to completely new. Why? Because we're made new in Christ. We are given a new identity. It's as if God put a big red X on our head, and he's looking from heaven, he says, yep, he's mine. And you know what? The effects of us being in his word and realizing who God has called us to be affects generations. What a gift that is. But if we also, the opposite is true. If we can affect generations in a positive way, it should also cause us to mourn for those who are not walking in that freedom, right? I do it every day. And then I fail, I'm like, okay, let me, let me focus on me here for a minute. Let me get me back right in alignment with God. And then I go right back to worrying about other people. I can't help it. The spirit of God is in me, and it's in you if you're in Christ. There's no different spirit in me than in you. There's nothing special about this job, this special anointing that I have on my life. You're anointed. You're called. You're called to pursue the Lord where you're at, whether it's at a college campus, whether it's at your nine to five, whether it's in retirement, whether it's in the mountains bow hunting. We're called to represent the kingdom of God because you can't turn the Holy Spirit off like a light switch. You don't get to choose when the Holy Spirit is in you and is resonating in you and pouring out of you. If you're in God's word, you develop this biblical worldview and you see everything through that lens. That's the blessing of what we get to experience as Christians. It can also be one of the most difficult things that we get to experience as Christians, to see people through that lens in which God uh, 
God sees people. I, I, what I'm not saying, and I want to be clear in this, as I was talking about condemnation, I, I want to be clear in this also. This is not, you new King James people are going to love this, this is not a holier-than-thou mentality. You hear me in that? This isn't like, I'm holier than you, let me show you how holy you can be and you can be more like me. That's not it at all. That, that's actually the complete opposite of what it is. Uh, in chapter 7 of Matthew... Starting in verse 3, uh, they entitle this Judging Others. It says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but no, don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. You first take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's what I'm saying here. My first point was that we should grieve and mourn our sinfulness and our sinful nature, right? Then we should grow in understanding the sinfulness of the world and be able to help with that speck. Let me tell you, it's hard to take a speck out of somebody's eye if you've got a log in your own eye. And even at that, a branch or a twig or even the corner root of a tree, right? How can you see somebody else's if you haven't worked on that in your own life, if you're not a good representation? But once you start pulling those layers back piece by piece, it gives you this ability and this lens to see the speck in other people's eyes, right? It has to. How many of you have ever grieved for a brother or sister before? In any capacity. I, I do it daily. I have a list of people that I pray for every single day that I know are far from the Lord. I, I pray for those people constantly not only does prayer change, but it changes my view of those people, right? Because I want them to have what I, what, I want them to have what I have. I want them to see the spirit that resonates in me, and that should be attractive to people, right? Now hear me, I fail. I have failed a lot. I'm not always the most attractive Christian, but I go back to looking at me first, realizing where I am, repenting of that sin, and then moving forward to continue to pursue people. Well, why is that so important? I'll tell you why. Because God pushed us into this position of this is what we're supposed to do. Anybody ever heard of the Great Commission? Yeah, most of us. Matthew 28, 19. I don't want you to miss verse 20. I'm going to say it, but I'm going to start in 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Usually we stop, right? That's where we stop the Great Commission. Listen to what verse 20 says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How can we know all that God has commanded us if we don't pick up our Bibles and read it? Is that a legit question? How can we teach people who we're trying to disciple God's word if we don't know it? The sad reality is people don't read their Bible. We're not sharpening our sword. We're not picking this up and realizing who God is, the way he sees us, and how we can help other people. This is the playbook to life. This is, this, there's something I love so much about this. It, it's not affected by who the president is or what popular belief or opinions are currently. It doesn't depend on social status. God's word is God's word. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It does not change no matter what circumstances are in the world at all, period. It's like we play by a separate rule book, right? I'm not saying to go create havoc, but I'm telling you, this law takes uh, place over any other law of whatever land you live in, 
right? But if you don't know what God's word says about specific things, then you're not doing justice to be able to help those who are in that sinful state. More than likely, there's something in here in any situation where you're pouring into someone's life that could help resonate and draw them near to God. It's in here. I've used it. It works really good. Sometimes we don't have the words, but we can use the word that God has given us. So we should grow to mourn this sinfulness of the world. Uh, And my third point is that we shall be comforted. So the second part of this one verse that I was given to preach on says, for they shall be comforted. Who? Those who mourn. So what does it mean to be comforted? What is Jesus talking about here? What is this comfort that he's speaking of? Because a lot of people, and I've been there, would say, I don't feel comforted. I don't feel very comfortable in these situations I'm going through. I want to really talk about the type of comfort that Jesus is talking about here. This comfort found in Matthew 5, 4, comfort is a person. Comfort is a promise. That comfort is Jesus. It's not that you, he's going to wipe away every single tear right here, right now. It's just not the reality. If somebody's told you that in the past, I'm sorry. It's just not the reality. That's just not how it works. This is a future promise the promise of God that you shall be comforted when you grieve and mourn your sin, repent of it, and ask him into your heart. There's a future promise that you shall be comforted. The best promise that can be possibly written. We receive the comfort of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God, through Jesus, who was fully man and fully human, Uh, and fully God, comforts us by giving us this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. This is a promise of the future. You shall be comforted by the kingdom of heaven. There are trials and tribulations in this world. There are hardships. I've experienced them. A lot of you in here know I experienced them very recently. And you're part of that mourning process that helped us move from that, right? But at the end of the day, my peace or that comfort is not fully provided here on earth because this is a future promise by Jesus of a future inheritance that cannot be taken. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken. That was pretty good. I just made that up right now. (laughs) Honestly, honestly, it is stunning to think about that God has invited us into his kingdom. Uh, Romans, again, talks about us being made co-heirs with Christ. The one who came and lived a perfect life, a sinless life, not one sin, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, we become co-heirs with Christ. And if that's not you in this room, if you don't have that comfort that comes in the future, today can be that day. If the band wants to come up, In Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, I'll I'll do the King James Version again because I really like that. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. There's a lot of people that in the church have this biblical head knowledge, right? You can go to schools and they can teach it. I've been around at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, some of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my entire life that have entire books of God's word memorized. But there's no connect between here and here. They have the head knowledge, but they're not living in the fullness of Christ that comes into your heart when you're saved. And I know for a fact that there are people in here who have heard the gospel but have not experienced that heart change of the gospel. If you're in here today and you have not heard the gospel, it's very simple. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have this sinful nature that causes us to mourn. And the reason we mourn is because we're separated from a loving and righteous God. And God did not like that. So you know what he did? He did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus, to come here and to die on the cross and be buried on your behalf. When Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, he did it for you and for me. And he had you in mind when he did it. He took on the weight of what should happen to us for our sin. He took on the wrath that we deserve as sinful people. And he put that on himself and he went to the cross and he died on your behalf. But here's the amazing thing. He didn't stay there. Who in here knows he didn't stay out in there? That's right, amen. Jesus exploded out of the grave on your behalf to prove what he did took place and was exactly what should happen. We were buried with him and then we became co-heirs the moment we called upon the name of the Lord. Think about that. Think about the comfort that comes with that, even though we may experience trials and tribulations, even though there are things that we take in this world that are difficult to deal with. When we mourn to that point of grieving and lament, God is there. He comforts us in that time and promises a hope and a future with him as a co-heir where we are equal with him in in heaven. Think about that. And all it takes is you praying and asking the Lord into your heart. If you have not confessed Jesus, it's very simple. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then from this moment on, amen, Tom, thank you. From this moment on, eternity is yours with Christ. Think about that. Think about the comfort in a place where there is no pain, there is no hurting, there is no more mourning. Why? Because Jesus did it for you. Jesus took all that on and said, I love you so much that I'll do this for you on your behalf. Why? Because he pursues those people. He pursues people who pursues him. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. James 4. If we are not mourning our sin, we're doing a disservice because that's what Jesus is telling us to do. If that mourning and that grieving doesn't cause us to grieve for the sinfulness of the world, we're falling short. But there is one who is the ultimate comforter and provides comfort beyond anything we can ever imagine. And today that could be the kingdom of heaven, which is yours. As we move into communion, 
I want to talk shortly about what communion is, and I think that Marcus picked uh, possibly a perfect song for this, Um, a a song that absolutely resonates with me, and that is, It Is Well With My Soul. There is something so special about this song that really causes me to a point to recollect what God has done for me and the magnitude of salvation. But what I want to say is that if you are not in Christ, communion is not for you. So I want to read some scripture here. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Paul writes, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so that he can eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Do we grasp the weight of what this means? The blood of Christ shed on our behalf and he invites us into communion to be able to experience that here on earth. Luke talked a couple weeks ago when we did baptisms how he can't do a baptism or be part of a baptism without crying. I'm the same with this. You know why? Because I'm sinful and I don't deserve it. God has done something for me that I do not deserve. I'm the Roman soldier who stuck the sword in Jesus' side to see if he was dead. I'm that kind of guy. And yet Jesus, on my behalf, invited us into this. This is something special. This is something that should resonate something in our souls that God has invited us in because Jesus said, I'm not going to be here, but I want you to experience me. So what I'd like to do, we're going to turn the lights off and we're going to sing this song. And this is what I want everybody to do. You can stand and sing. You can sit and pray. Self-examine. Remember what Jesus did. Remember the blood he shed on our behalf, the body that was broken, but it didn't stay there. And if you're in Christ today... Live in that experience, that freedom of what Jesus has done for you and what this represents. We're going to turn off the lights and we're going to sing. I'm challenging you to do work with God right now.